Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. But of the good which there I found, speak will I. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to have you back with me today for this next um, episode in our series of podcasts. Today's episode is fun. I got to talk with one of my former lecturers from St. Andrews University, and we talked about Dante's Commedia, which is a story about someone who is, as you just heard from the opening lines, lost in the dark wood of life, seeking orientation. It was so fun to discuss this work with George, who is something of an expert in it, and to think about the ways in which um, beauty might be something that guides us in the dark wood of our life. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la diritta via era smarita. Ah, e quanto a dir qual era e cosa dura, esta selva selvaggia e aspra e forte che nel pensiero rinnova la paura, tanta amara che poche più morte, ma per trattar del ben che ivi trovai, dirò dell'altre cose che io più scorte. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. Today, I have the great pleasure of inviting someone who used to be my lecturer at the Institute for Theology, Imagination, and the Arts. You just heard him introduce the beautiful and poetic and lyrical beginning of the topic of our conversation today, which is um, Dante's Divine Comedy. I am delighted to welcome George Corbett, who is a senior lecturer in theology and the arts at the University of St. Andrews. It is a delight to have you. Thank you, Joy. Um, It's lovely to be here. So, George, tell us a bit about yourself, what you spend your days doing, and where you are. Um, So, I'm in Ceres, which is um, the last pilgrim stop on your way to St. Andrews, about nine miles out of St. Andrews. So, I'm working from home today. My little boy, Dominic's um, uh, got a fever, so he's upstairs. Um, And what do I spend my days doing? Well, the teaching semester's over, um, but yesterday I was going for walks with some of my PhD students and um, trying to get a a, a few articles and, and talks which I should have got written, written. (laughs) <laughs> That's the academic life, isn't it? And of course, I was just thinking that Dominic um, has a lot to do, the Saint Dominic has a lot to do with the theology of Dante that we're going to talk about today, doesn't he? Um, yes, indeed. St. Dominic has a, a, a kind of a, a major place in the poem. Um, um, I mean, St. Bonaventure actually, as a Franciscan, talks about the life of, of St. Dominic in, in, in Paradise and then um, St. Thomas Aquinas in the sense the sort of greatest star of the Dominicans um, uh, talks about um, St. Francis in, in Paradise as well. Um, so yes, St. Dominic and, and the Dominicans, um, absolutely, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, so today I'm having you on because I want to talk about your new book, 
um, which I've had a look at and is absolutely delightful. It's called Dante's Christian Ethics, and it just came out this year, right? Um, yeah, this past year, 2020. 2020, yeah. yes, in the midst of all the madness. Um, exactly. And I had the pleasure of being in your class, gosh, I think it's almost five years ago now, which is really wild to me. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, yeah. But you really made Dante come alive for me. And, um, and I think that Dante is one of those authors who people have a sense in their mind that they want to engage with, but he's just kind of vast. And, um, and so I'm really excited to talk with you about your book, but also um, to get your, your insight into why people should read Dante, what Dante is all about. So perhaps could you just begin by giving a sense of what the Commedia is, who Dante was, and kind of what it's about and why it's important. Yeah, well, um, I mean, this year uh, we're celebrating the 700th anniversary of his death in 1321. So oh, wow. it's a long time ago um, in, in the sense that he wrote this poem. But it's had such an enormous influence on uh, everything which has been written in European literature and English literature since, really. And I came to Dante initially through uh, actually the English modernists, you know, T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, very interested in Dante. Um, uh, it's this extraordinary poem. It's in a in hundred cantos. Um, T.S. Eliot actually said that just one episode of one canto of Dante's Commedia is, um, has more in it than a whole Shakespeare play. So mm. you can imagine um, you've got the riches here of 100 um, Shakespeare plays or more in T.S. Eliot's view. And I think that's true. Um, it's just a, a, a kind of, a, I see it as, um, you know, a bit like scripture. It's like the sea, you know, children can paddle in it and get something out of it on a first read because it is a great read. But it, it has the depth of the sea. You, you can never um, exhaust the riches that are there. And, and that's been my professional life since I encountered it, really. I, you're just always discovering more, always being opened up to, to new conversations. I mean, just for those of your listeners who, who don't know um, what the poem is about, um, it, it tells the story of uh, Dante, who makes himself a character in his poem, a fictional um, journey through the three regions of the medieval afterlife. So there are 34 cantos devoted to his journey through hell, 33 cantos to his journey through purgatory, and um, 33 um, cantos dedicated to his journey through paradise. Um, but what it really gives you through that eschatology, if you like, is uh, an extraordinary map and picture and insight into the whole world of European Christianity, not just the thought, um, the theology, the philosophy, but also the art, the culture, um, the, 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 the way that Christianity was lived. So it really just opens up this, this, this extraordinary world. And, and um, yeah, for, for any of your listeners who, who haven't uh, taken the step of having a go at Dante, um, you know, just, just, just jump in, dive in and, and enjoy it. Um, I would say, yeah. Yeah, well, and I remember when you first taught us, we we kind of dove into one particular canto, like like you were saying with T.S. Eliot, that there's yeah. sometimes a good way, I think that reading through it is riveting, but also if you're yeah. feeling overwhelmed, it can be good to pick one canto, dive into it, and then you'll be hooked, I think. That's usually what I think. 
Absolutely joy. And I think, yeah, it's easy to get overwhelmed by by the immensity of it. I mean, in some ways, you know, another, you know, I was teaching this semester Aquinas mm. and actually we, I, I taught with the compendium of theology rather than the Summa theology. We, we kind of went to the Summa. But that's another text that people just, you know, where do you start? It's just so immense. Yeah. And you know, one option is to, to say, right, it's so immense. I'm just not going to go there at all. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people do that with Aquinas. They do it with Dante as well. Mm. And what I tried to say is, look, just because Bach or Mozart wrote a huge amount of music shouldn't mm-hmm. stop you listening to one sonata or one cantata. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> so, even if you just read one episode of Dante or one bit of Aquinas, just 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 as you say, just start with that and really get into it. And you're mm-hmm. right. I mean, when when I taught Dante as part of a broader course, like that course in theology arts, we only had about two classes, didn't we? So I deliberately focused just on a few mm-hmm. cantos, a bit like focusing on a few sonatas, and then really get into depth with them. And and I know that you know one of the most famous cantos we looked into was uh, the famous episode of Francesca and Paolo, mm-hmm. um, and that's a wonderful canto where you really see, I think what um, T.S. Eliot was saying, because you've got uh, a story of a love affair on the, on the literal level, but then all these other layers that are underpinning it, um, there's the mythological story of um, Aphrodite and Vulcan and Mars and the humiliation of uh, Vulcan or Hephrastes. Um, you've got the scriptural um, song of songs underpinning it. You've got the moral dimension. Um, you've got all these different mentions. So, and I think that can be a much better way, you know, as, as the medievals would say, to sort of chew the grass, but just mm. to start with something small, rather than just superficially reading over the whole thing. But that's okay as well. Um, and um, yeah, but as I said, you know, it's just diving in and, and, and seeing 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 what interests you but in some ways i mean i think your question i think sometimes it is helpful to have a guide in mm-hmm. reading dante. and i think you know dante gives us that example because of course he goes on his um culture and intellectual journey and the first thing he says is help you know help you know and i think a lot of people reading dante would just really say help what is going on right mm-hmm. you need a guide and, and it's finding guides that can be really helpful. Mm. Um, but, I mean, we could talk about this, but there are so many different commentaries for different kinds of readers mm. um, that can ha- help guide your reading and, um, mm. um, uh, and help you sort of get into the, the text and world of Dante. So that's very helpful. I would love to know for you personally, um, when did you first read Dante and how did you end up diving in and getting getting stuck in the sea or choosing to stay in the sea of Dante? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I went to music school, Cheetahs in Manchester, and I remember knowing about the Dante Sonata, Liszt Dante Sonata and studying that. I think that's the first time I'd heard of Dante. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I was just extremely fortunate. I mean, I went... Um, I studied English at Trinity College, Cambridge. And I think, you know, you know, we, we have a lot of students from sort of American liberal arts colleges. And, and I think doing English at Trinity is a bit like the liberal arts mm. experience. You know, you really have the opportunity. It's not just English literature. Um, you know, I did um, a whole philosophy course. I studied classical philosophy. Um, we did the um, uh, Greek literature and Greek myth. So it was a very broad course. And one thing that you're able to do, um, which was almost a course within a course, uh, was take a, a, a language course and, and you could do Italian ab initio. And I hadn't initially chosen that actually, but a couple of my fellow students who are, who are still good friends uh, did it and they just said, God, this is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because 
um, it was taught by uh, Eric Griffiths, who was quite an eccentric don in um, Trinity, and Robin Kirkpatrick, who mm. uh, was professor of English and uh, Italian literature and also did the Penguin translation more recently. Um, and there was also Deborah Bauman, who was an incredibly um, bright um, uh, PhD student, um, who's now a don at, at Keys as well. And and it was just interesting, and it was something completely new for me. I think, you know, it, for me, Dante opened up a new world, and it did that for a number of reasons. But I think, I mean, at least with my English background, we have the royal subjects, right, when you do humanities. You have English and history. And when you do English, there's basically two periods. The old stuff is Shakespeare and the Renaissance, and the new stuff is kind of 20th century literature. And when you do history, you do the Judas and Stuarts, and you do the First and Second World Wars. I mean, there's character, but it's kind of true. Um, and I was desperate, I was thirsting for something different, and Dante offered that. It opened up the whole medieval world, a whole, whole culture, um, uh, and it opened a totally different understanding, for me mm. at any rate, of Christian theology. Mm. Uh, um, uh, theology which is engaged with philosophy. Um, scripture, which is now being interpreted always in, according to all these symbolic senses, all these, this kind of depth. And I was just, I mean, I would say I was seduced, I was enraptured by all of that. And so, although it was only a small part of my course, um, I kind of felt, gosh, this is really, really interesting. And that's what um, led me, I actually borrowed the Dante paper from the Italian part in the second, third, next semester, and then went into modern medieval languages and Dante, and then went to Italy. And yeah. I, you know, I was then just kind of following that world. But it was that exposure, definitely, as an undergraduate um, to Dante um, that, that, that got me interested in it. Um, yeah, and I suppose, you know, for me, Dante has been my own kind of guide in life going forward, an intellectual guide. And I feel so grateful to the, the teachers who introduced me to Dante, but then to Dante himself, because mm. it's, it's through Dante that I've then been introduced to, uh, you know, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, mm. Aquinas, Bonaventure, you know, all the, um, I mean, I was already very interested in classical philosophy and Aristotle, um, but to Virgil, to classical literature, to Stasius, to Lucan, you know, the, the whole the whole European civilization, in a sense, um, Dante just, just becomes your guide and, 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 and a wonderful interlocutor in engaging with that. I think the thing that I love about what you've just shared and also about Dante in general is that obviously there's so there's great riches philosophically, artistically, historically, theologically in the work. But whenever I hear people who really love Dante describe how they came to love Dante, it's always through this kind of very human um, pull, like you said, of, of seduction, of, of having a guide, of wanting to be drawn into a journey. And of course, Dante has that. You know, first he's guided by Virgil and then he's drawn by Beatrice, this um, this person whom he whom he loves and desires and is pulled towards, and there's something very human in Dante, even while it is this deep, rich text full of theological truths. It's something that gets to the heart of what it is to be human, the desire and the difficulties, and what it is to become good, and um, it reckons with those things in a way which is deep and profound, but also deeply relatable. And of course, the opening section that you read to us so beautifully in Italian is um, it's Dante awakening in a wood um, in the midst of life, confused, not knowing which way to go. And that's kind of the context for the whole for the whole um, piece is this sense of lostness and then looking for a guide and then him having a guide who begins him this journey toward heaven. And um, and I think that theme of guidance, of lostness and desire is so appealing and particularly appealing to, I think, our own times in which people have a desire for something profound and deep, but also have that sense of being in the lost wood. And there's a lot, I think, 
to guide us and give us things worth thinking through and thinking about and living in and in Dante. So, oh, do you have something? I respond to that because that's such a, a beautiful reflection, Joy. And, you know, I hadn't thought about this for myself in this way, but you kind of asked an autobiographical question. But I just say um, that's that absolutely reflects my experience. And mm. I think you're right that, um, you know, I, I was a kind of young student and, and you are, even if you're not aware of it, lost in a dark wood, you're looking mm. for orientation. Um, I wouldn't have characterized it in sin in those days in any way, but the, you know, that sense of darkness of looking um, for, for guides. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's very right. And I think, you know, I, I was a musician before and I, I thought I was gonna be a musician. Um, and again, you know, what was drawing me to a musician was was beauty. You know, mm. I, I didn't think of it as beauty, but you're attracted to the desire for beauty. There's a, and, and this sense of um, Dante, I think, for, for many people, it could be another author it's in literature as well. Um, we see in it something, um, mm. whether it's, it's whether it's a glimpse of goodness, a glimpse mm. of beauty, a glimpse of truth, and that attracts us. I mean, we would talk about that, wouldn't we, in mm-hmm. theological aesthetics, in terms of on balance theological mm-hmm. aesthetics. And I certainly wouldn't have articulated in those times. But now that I look reflect back on those times, I think what I found in art whether it was music or, or in this case was literature, was something which was responding, as you say, to a desire in me, mm. which I didn't necessarily know about. Um, and, and at that time, you're just, you're just following it. You don't understand it. But then it takes you on this journey and then gradually you realize, ah, oh, you know, this is leading me somewhere um, uh, and somewhere really constructive, which brings those together in a sense that, yeah. as Fulpasa says, you know, the beauty drawing you to the mm. goodness and the truth, um, uh, which is very attractive and, and the real power, I think, of, of, of the arts. Absolutely. Yes. And that um, the Commedia in particular kind of embodies, it both does that for you, it draws you in with its beauty, but it also then, in its very form, kind of embodies what's happening, which is being drawn by desire and then being led to to God and to truth and to beauty and to goodness. The Beatrice is in a sense, you have the truth, the goodness and the beauty of Christian Mm. revelation, right? The beauty of Christian. I think that's Mm. really the key message of Beatrice, that Mm. That actually we find something beautiful about Christianity, mm. and that's what leads leads us, and that's why Beatrice is so beautiful. Yes, and I think that's particularly important in these times when there's so much uncertainty around. Sometimes I think truth and goodness. We don't know how to articulate those things or to say what is true or what is good. But I think there is still, as there was with Dante, this inherent automatic attraction to what is beautiful. This. And, and that it pulls you forward. And um, and that is what... can respond to that, you know, no matter what their moral or where, uh, you know, whether they're Christian, non-Christian atheist, we can still respond to beauty. It's what von Balthasar and others are saying, isn't it? That's we need beauty today. But I think of anyone, Dante mm-hmm. embodies it because you clearly have the goodness and the truth there. Yeah. But you also have the beauty, the beauty of Beatrice, which allures us, which intrigues us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, we do, you, you can't help, I mean, I spent a year living in Pisa and you have the Piazza dei Tre Miracoli. Um, again, you can come up to that as a complete outsider of Christianity, but everyone, you see the busloads going there, are drawn to it because of its beauty. Mm. But what, what, what it's inviting us to is mm. saying, well, there's a source to that beauty. Mm. There's, there's, you don't just stop there looking at the beauty and being dazzled, but go beyond it. And um, architecture and art can do that, but uh, a literature can do that even more because because mm. the, the truth and the goodness is just there. It, yeah. it, I used to live in California, which is, this may be um, a controversial statement, but on the whole, 
where I lived in California was not a beautiful place. There was a lot of concrete and it was, uh, you know, it's this, it's this strangely superficial place where you transplant trees that didn't belong there. Um, but I remember one day driving along a highway um, by the ocean and all of these cars were pulled over and I thought, oh my gosh, has there been an accident? What's happening? And so I pulled over as well and I got out and I realized that everyone had just stopped to look at the sunset over the ocean. Um, and it was beautiful. And I had this this kind of out-of-body experience where I thought, this is so funny. We're all these little creatures and there's something beautiful happening. And it stopped everyone and oriented us around this beautiful thing. And it seems like it's this inherent desire to to see and to appreciate and to stop. And I think that, that that's what we see in Dante is this orientation around the beautiful that we just kind of can't get over. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I suppose we should talk about your book. Now, the, um, the central idea behind your book is that the Commedia is a work of Christian ethics. So we're already yeah. getting to this, right, what we're saying, but that it's, its goal is, and you quote um, uh, Beatrice, or Beatrice, as we'd say in, in English, um, that the work is for the good of a world which lives badly. I just thought that was such a, a perfect way of, of putting it. And, yeah. and that, um, as we've been saying, that this is a, a beautiful work, but it's also a work that's inherently about kind of um, ethics. So what, what do you mean when you say that it, it is a work of Christian ethics? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, it's funny how our conversation has led to this. So that's completely not deliberate. But I suppose there you've got the beauty and the, the goodness, if you like, coming together. And I think um, because... Uh, Dante's Commedia often has been studied in, in quite a secular context, mm. in literature, language departments. Um, uh, maybe, and I think there has been a downplaying of the ethical um, and just a focus on the literary. Um, mm. And uh, one of the arguments in my book is that um, Dante explicitly defined his poem as a work of morale negotium, of sive etica, of ethics. Um, and that if we interpret it in that light, it, it, as a work of ethics, actually we come to appreciate much more mm. um, its um, beauty and its and mm. its literary skill and and, and kind of brilliance. Mm. Um, uh, but also, I think, um, why shouldn't we also read the poem as um, uh, as enlightening, as something mm. which can challenge us ethically, can move us ethically? Um, can provoke an ethical response. Mm. And I think a lot of kind of amateur readers of Dante are interested in that. Um, and you know, here I'm not saying uh, we should just accept the uh, moral criteria that he adopts in his poem, but those can challenge us. And indeed, you know, typically, I, think, I don't know if they did it with you lot, but you know, often if I'm, if I'm thinking about teaching the poem, I often say to people, look, um, put yourself in Dante's shoes and say, uh, you, you, you've got to think of all um, th things which are evil, all the different evils, uh, and write them all down. Think what your evil, and everyone's going to have a different list, but mm. some of them will overlap. I say, now, try and order those from the least bad to the <laughs> worst. That's a really challenging ethical thing to do, mm. but it's what Dante has to do in his inferno, right? Because you've got all the different evils, but he's also saying this is less evil, this is more evil, and he's also saying why something is evil or whatever. And I think if we um, engage with Dante in that dialogic way, so we're not just saying 
uh, I agree with what he says, but we say, well, what do I think is good at that? Mm. And then we come to his poem and think, what's he right? Then we have a really interesting conversation. Mm. But also we should do that from an artistic point of view. We say, right, let, let's take the, uh, the, the issue of, um, I don't know what it's called, suicide, say. Mm. How, how would I embody that? How would I mm. visualise that? And then we think, well, how has he done it? Well, he's done mm. it through these shrubs and these trees. How interesting. Mm. So um, I think um, once you start engaging the ethical, the, and, and then how he's trying to translate some of these ethical ideas into the imaginary figurative world, mm. um, and how he's trying to draw us in um, to the individual people and their moral mm. dilemmas, um, it just makes the poem so much more interesting. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, I mean, just going back to the first question, how do you get into the poem? I think if, if you're thinking, oh, I've got to work myself through 100 candidates, it can be quite difficult. Um, I think if you get your head around the moral structure of the poem, that actually really helps you uh, have a sense of the poem as a whole. And I really hope some of my colleagues actually said they're using the first chapter of the book in particular for undergraduate courses, because what I try to do in that first chapter is just give an overview of the moral structure of all the three mm -hmm. realms. Um, and, 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 and I think that can just help orientate um, people in wanting to read the poem. And as I said, for me, it's that reading the poem also as Dante intended it. Dante mm -hmm. wanted to, uh, to provoke a moral response in his readers. He wanted to reform society. And I think if we engage with the poem with that in mind, we get a lot more out of it than if we just sort of see it as a museum piece, which is kind of a beautiful piece of literature. Well, exactly. Okay, now there's two questions that are coming out of that in my mind. Um, the first, I'll ask the first, which I think you can give us a, a summary of, which is you've talked about kind of the structure, the architecture. And in the book, you use the phrase several times, the moral topography, right? That he's, he's charting out these questions of vice and virtue and ethics on an actual kind of um, physical space almost that he's imagining these as rings so tell us a bit about that and what is the general moral topography and then how can we imagine that yeah I, that's a, a the big question but no it's a great question and you know some of the problems you know coming to Dante you think well it's a geocentric world but we have to remember that um uh and you, you know talked about C.S. Lewis and recovering uh, mm. that um but it, this is what he's doing is he's, 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 he's got an ethical idea. He's got all these ethical ideas, and he's trying to translate it into material forms. Yes. And that's the key starting point, right? And even if you think about the morotography, the very basic um, idea of, of what he has, he has this idea that when the angels fall from heaven, right, mm. the earth, which is spherical, obviously, um, recoils in horror. And that's what creates... The funnel of hell and then you have satan obviously at the, at the very midpoint of the hell but as god out of every evil always brings about some good so that displaced earth which has recoiled for mm. the fall of the angels pops up on the southern hemisphere <laughs> of the earth as the mountain of purgatory which is of course man's way back to God. Mm. So what I'm talking about the moral topography is about him imagining what is here a th um, moral theology mm. on the macro scale. That's what he's mapping on so that we can we can see it. So then, of course, as you go down through the funnel of hell, you circle mm -hmm. the funnel, then you get into ever greater evils until you meet um, Satan at the, the Earth's midpoint. He then um, um, pops out on the southern hemisphere and then you go up 
Mount Purgatory. So as you're going up Mount Purgatory, you're going away from Satan, away from evil. So you're getting and you're getting closer to God. So the um, evils are getting less bad. So you start with pride, which is the worst sin. Um, and then you go up through the heavenly spheres. Um, uh, and this is the, the geocentric the heavenly spheres, uh, moon, Mercury, Venus, the, mm-hmm. the sun, Jupiter, Saturn, um, etc. And then you eventually get to the 10th sphere, the Imperium beyond time and space. But all of this, um, and this is why it's still valid, has nothing to do with being in a heliocentric or geocentric. Yeah. All of this is just poetry, right? It's yeah. using material reality to embody ethical and moral, moral truths. And indeed, in the poem, this is exactly what, um, say, Picard has said, it says, we are here in the lowest sphere, mm. this sphere of the moon, in order to condescend to your human intellects, which go from material things to intellectual cognition. In fact, all the blessed reside in God, which is beyond space and time. So this is the the, the whole, um, and this is so central to theology arts and the incarnation, Mm. but it's that, um, and to scripture, that God speaks in the language of men, that we use these material images um, in order to direct us to, um, uh, spiritual truths, um, yeah. And, 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 and yeah. So, so in terms of the moral topography, I mean, that's just to give you the, the idea of the whole macro um, structure. But then, at every minute level, um, everything means something. Yeah. You know, every, whether it's a river, whether it's um, mm. someone, even just a gesture, everything has a meaning. Mm. Um, I think that's that's very that's very helpful. So thank you. And it reminds me. Recently, I've been doing on another research project. I've been doing a little bit of oddly work on Jung and of course he thinks about the self in this in a similar way he talks about it as a map as a topography of somewhere you can move through and this was a a big deal for him because everything had become so disembodied and intellectual and um to the point that when we talk about ethics it's this very abstract thing when of course the very realm in which we live ethics is with our spouse and our children and our neighbors and and um, in a world with with food we really can eat too much of. And, um, you know, there's this sense that it's entirely backwards to try to imagine um, ethical things, whether it's our choices or even just our souls, without the incarnate, touchable, tangible things. And it reminds me of when, um, when we did this, of course, you had us read uh, Martha Nussbaum's, what is it called? Um, Love... It- was it upheavals of thought or no. agility of uh, I love image. Yes, loves knowledge. And she has, of course, that phrase where she says, style itself makes its claims, expresses its own sense of what matters. Literary yeah. form is not separate from philosophical content, but is a part of the content. And yeah. I think that's what's happening in Dante is that it's giving us this idea that actually perhaps thinking about um, the ethical life and about uh, Christian virtue must be done in a form other than just abstract thought. It must engage the imagination and and the senses. And so that seems like that's what's happening here. It's kind of shaping a Christian morality through this poetic sense. Look, absolutely. And I think, you know, Dante was young uh, uh, avant l'être or whatever. <laughs> you know, why? Why? I mean, he's been called um, a philomythes by a Dante scholar. And of course, you know, Dan- Aquinas in his commentary on metaphysics refers to philomythes and uh, a lover of myth. Mm. But all of that Greek myth and, and Latin myth is there in the poem. Mm-hmm. Why does do that as a Christian, why does he not let it go? Mm. Because these are archetypes, these are human archetypes, they respond to our psychology, they map our psychology, they map 
externally the inner life and the inner world. Mm. And I think you're absolutely right. The kind of um, uh, kind of glass palace of Kantian morality is so abstract. It doesn't. Um, it, we can't relate to it. It's mm. not human. I mean, that's a you know caricature, but but. Um, it's not relating to our bodies, our, our, our ways of experience. Um, and um, the recovery by Jung and others of, of, of Greek myths is a way to return to those architectures, to give them embodiment. Mm. Um, but I think that's also why um, Dante, but also the whole medieval period, um, preserved and used uh, myth and, mm-hmm. and Greek literature because they recognized in it the embodiment of um, profound human desires and experiences. And they saw the fulfillment of those um, desires and experiences in Christianity. So that's why all those medieval commentaries on, on, on the classics, which I'm very interested in, um, aren't just trying to understand the texts in their own time, but are trying to see Christianity as the fulfillment of what's in those texts, but absolutely um, uh, incorporating them. And indeed, you know, Dante's poem, one of the things that's so fascinating about it is it is a conversation. The whole poem is a conversation between Christianity, if you like, between Dante and the whole classical world, not just of philosophy, but of myth, mm-hmm. of literary culture, embodied um, in Virgil. Um, and I think, um, yeah, so so I, I totally agree. And then the, the point about Martha Nussbaum as well, and this emphasis, you know, someone, uh, you know, also a female philosopher fed up with these kind of analytic <laughs> male philosophers, she slightly dismissed her, I think, at Harvard, but what she helped to recover uh, alongside many other scholars um, was the emotions and 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 the um, ethics in particular is to do with individual lives. Someone like McIntyre is another mm. good example of that. It's embodied in human experience. And and McIntyre is another person actually who you know who writes in his I think three Roman versions of what inquiry that in order to understand even Thomistic um, philosophy and theology, you need to read Dante because you need to see um, philosophy embodied in moral practice. Mm. Um, and I think that's right. Um, I mean, the problem about being a Dante scholar is you, you always end up saying, well, Dante said that, and it's not. I mean, Jung brings his own thing, but all I'm saying is that, that a lot of the truth which is there, um, I think, you know, this is why people like that can often be attracted to Dante, because he, he's doing very similar things. Well, the thing that I felt when I was reading Jung was, in some ways, you're like, well, yes, you're onto something, but there's almost a, um, a sterility to the way he imagines, not really, but like, there's because he's trying to recover something, which when you read Dante, you're like, it's already there. We just kind mm. of abandoned it um, as, a, as a culture. And so I think there's just so much to recover. Um, there's so much for the mind and the imagination, um, nay, even the psyche to feed upon if one would merely read Dante. So George, um, your book focus, focuses particularly on purgatory. Now, purgatory yeah. is, um, it seems to have been kind of was was coming to be a more concrete doctrine at the era when when Dante was writing this, uh, but it's one which is you know kind of concerning or confusing to some Protestant readers. But it's also just kind of one of the more I don't know um, complicated ideas or doctrines to begin with. So why why is purgatory so important for Dante, and why do you choose to um, focus on it in your book? Yeah, thanks. It's a very good question, and. I think one of the key arguments we've already touched on, really, is that I'm saying that uh, Dante's not writing his poem about hell, purgatory and paradise. Rather, these regions are ways of embodying the ethical um, message that he's wanting to get across. Mm. And so for the Protestant regions, I say, don't worry too much about purgatory. <laughs> That's, in a sense, the means rather than the end. 
Um, but what's really fascinating, I think, also for secular or atheist readers, is that when you come to Inferno, it's so rational. And indeed, the moral criteria that Dante adopts for Inferno is ostensibly completely in line with philosophical ethics. The master here is Aristotle. So his argument, his claim is that what he considers evil is evil here, not just according to Christian criteria, but according to any criteria which is human at all. So then when we come to purgatory, what I'm saying is here we have the embodiments of Dante's distinctively Christian um, ethics. And here, what you're talking about, the, the distillation of the doctrine of purgatory, and we think of the Council of Leon in 1274, um, comes together with the development in um, confession, which become compulsory, uh, annual confession have become compulsory in um, uh, Lateran 4 and 1215. Um, and what preachers are doing is they're trying to explain the Christian moral life. And they typically did it in the 13th century through the seven capital vices, because this was easily memorable. And then on to each of these seven capital vices, they would have all sorts of sub vices. So for example, sloth might have 24 sub vices. And they would explain the two doctrines of purgatory and confession together, partly because um, what's purgatory doing? It's making up for penance that you haven't done in this life. And it's also purifying the soul so it's ready to ascend to God. Um, but similarly, the second fire of purgatory is a way of thinking about what you should actually be doing in this life, which is this process of conversion. Now, one of the big arguments of my book is that Dante is drawing on this tradition of preaching on the seven capital vices. And I particularly emphasize this work by the Dominican um, uh, William Peraldus on the vices, um, which I believe is fundamental to Dante's um, writing. And, and I, I, once I started putting these two texts um, alongside each other, um, suddenly Dante's um, poem came alive because all these different sub vices were there. Um, whereas um, typically scholars have read um, Dante's Purgatory alongside Aquinas's mm. um, 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 Summa Theologiae. Um, and there are lots of parallels there, but I think the tradition that, that Dante is actually drawing on is this earlier one, which is understanding the whole moral life through the seven capital vices. Whereas, you know, just to clarify that point, what Aquinas does is bring about a revolution in moral theology by um, reincorporating all that material on the seven capital vices within a new um, uh, positive um, uh, structure according to the seven virtues and that's what he does in the second secunda, which then became in the sort of 14th 15th century kind of manual for moral theology dante i believe is not drawing on that tradition he's drawing on this early one of, of Peraldus. that makes sense uh, and and just to say this and then you can say more if you want to but yeah. so the emphasis then is not so much on the doctrine of purgatory or knowing exactly what happens after we die but in the sense of trying to imagine and trying to help people think through how to become, how, how to be purged in this life, even that there's this desire to think about sanctification and the emphasis is more pastoral than philosophical. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, you said sort of vulgar experiment. 100 percent. Hundo P. <laughs> listening to the football commentaries and they always say at the moment in the Euros, you know, 100 percent. Um, but yeah, I, I agree 100 percent. Um uh, absolutely. You know, this is about this life. It's not about the next life. It's about mm. this life. And it's exactly as you say, it's about it gives a map of Christian ethics mm. um, of, of, and 
um, you know, of the destructiveness of the vices, the destructiveness of pride, how that can distort our humanity, and how huma- humility can liberate it and can bring us joy. And, and similarly through through the different vices, but it does it not just, as you've been talking about, Nuspan, whatever, not just in terms of here's some moral statements, you must be this, you must be that, but seeing these, how these vices really corrupt people in their individual lives and similarly how the corresponding virtues free them mm. and and that's really what i mean this is beautiful image in um the terrace of pride it says noi siam vermi natia forma l'angelica fafalla we are worms do you not realize non vi accorgete voi che noi siam vermi do you not realize that we are worms born to form eternal butterflies. The idea mm. that is that in this life, we're in the cocoon, we're kind of, we're actually imprisoned in some ways, and we're, we're learning in that cocoon, which is a struggle, which is a torture, to then um, shoot forth this eternal butterfly, which mm. is um, our heavenly existence. That's what we're meant for, not mm. for this life. This life is a time of development, of conversion, of transformation. That transformation conversion is what Dante is expressing in the purgatory Mm. and then paradise is the butterfly then we're seeing the lives of the saints these beautiful exotic different colors so diverse Mm. but they've been free to be truly human to fulfill their true nature to be these wonderful butterflies through that process of christian ethics Mm. and that's why i think purgatory is so central so important because it gives us this very profound vision of Mm. christian moral transformation Mm. That's beautiful. And I love what you said about the kind of exotic beauty of everyone in heaven, because to me, it's um, I should like Milton more than I do. But of course, Milton's always accused of making goodness look kind of bland and uninspiring. But when you look at the the heavenly realm and and um, paradise in Dante, it's meant to be this this beautiful outpouring. This is what humans are meant to be. It's more beautiful. It's more interesting. It's more delightful. And I think also there's that, you laid out very well, a parallel between beauty and goodness, which is that beauty always kind of gestures beyond itself to something divine. And in the same way, the process of becoming good isn't just, it is this earthly life, but it naturally kind of gestures beyond this fulfillment in in the divine life. And so there's this kind of this invitation and drawing through and up. Drawing up, I agree. And I think, again, I mean, maybe this is an Anglophone cultural thing, but I think um, maybe I was brought up, um, you still got this sort of Victorian, you know, morality is boring. And again, you talk about Milton, English court, it's boring. It's kind of doing what you're told. Again, that kind of Kantian thing is dull. And it's also conforming. Being moral is conforming. Now, what Dante opens up is a completely different vision of goodness. Goodness is what gives you individuality. It liberates you to be truly unique. Mm-hmm. It's evil what which becomes conformist. And that's what is shown in the Francesca mm-hmm. and Paolo episode. They have their adulterous liaison, but all they're doing is just copying the infinite number of adulterous mm-hmm. uh, liaisons that have come, gone before. Whereas when you get to heaven, you have the flowers of the saints. They're all different. They're all doing extraordinarily. I mean, what's so striking about the lives of the saints, not just in Dante, but in general, is how different they are. Mm. You know, goodness is not one. Goodness is multiform. Mm. And, um, you know, we can see that also the difference between, you know, in modern saints, say, Teresa of Avila and Mm -hmm. um, Teresa of Calcutta. So different. Mm. Um, but, But goodness is what liberates you. It leads to... Um, the extraordinary and the ordinary, mm. um, 
um, badness is what's dull and leads to conformity and, uh, and what's boring. So I think you're right. Um, I mean, I think Dante is a much better poet than Milton, but I also, I mean, I love Milton, but I also think he gives such a more attractive account mm. of the Christian moral life and, um, and, and of heaven as something, you know, you want to be like these saints. Yeah. And that's, again, what Dante is saying. He's giving these pictures of these saintly lives and saying, look how extraordinary they are and look at what, what, what wonderful fruits there are. Um, follow their scent mm. is, is the analogy. These are beautiful flowers. Follow their scent follow their lives it's always this invitation yeah i think you're right it's the exact opposite of the opening to anna Karenina, you know and it says every um every happy family is the same but every unhappy family has its own kind of unhappiness but it's it's the opposite evil is banal sin is boring it's the same old um invitation to become less interesting and less beautiful and i think that is the gift that dante gives us is this invitation this attractiveness that what he's writing about is not meant to merely teach us something but to do something within us and inspire us and give us a scent of that flower to draw us on it's so typical i mean it's tolstoy again (laughs) you know you have this kind of upper class and you get that in the kind of um you know the upper class english writers as well you know they just critique it's like bourgeois morality it's middle class morality you know unfortunately that is so entrenched Mm. um we need to get away from all of that. It's nothing to do with just being boring and, and dumb, mm-hmm. as you say. It, it, the, the, if we look at heaven, look at the lives of the saints, they're, they're, they're extremely beautiful, they're incredibly diverse. And as you say, the dullness is just conforming to, to mm-hmm. sin in, yeah. in this sense. Yeah. It reminds me, I've been reading um, Therese, um, Trees of Lesseau's um, autobiography, which talks about all the different flowers of the Alps, that that is what God means the saints to be, as each its own glory. Well, George, I have kept you long enough. I have a feeling you have a little Dominique waiting for you. Um, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And tell everyone once again the title of your book so they can go and look at it. Oh, yes. So it's Dante's Christian Ethics, Purgatory, and It's More Context, and it's published by Cambridge University Press. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me and for giving us a taste of the flowers of heaven we can sniff in Dante. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you, Joy. I hope you enjoyed this week's Aggressively Happy Episodes. Don't forget to tune in next week and to pre-order your copy of Aggressively Happy, A Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life, which you can find wherever books are sold. Have a lovely week, and remember to rejoice though you have considered all the facts.